Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. And we have a special, special day today. I'm, I was able to finally get this amazing, iconic musician, writer, entrepreneur to agree to come on to True House Stories. But I want to show this first as so that you can see this. He is what I would say the founding member one of the founding members, along with his brother, that, that he holds a legacy for, Ronald Khalil Bell. And check this out. This is the wonderful part about how talented and how amazing this man and this group is, Cool in the Gang. His name is Robert Cool Bell. Those who know him, Cool, okay? They have had over 80 million albums worldwide and influenced the music of generations with over top 25 top 10 R&B hits, nine top 10 pop hits, and 31 gold and platinum albums. Okay? So welcome to True House Stories. My name is Lenny Fontana. And this week, we're bringing up the iconic Robert Cool. Bell, thank you, Mr. Cool, for coming on. And we appreciate your time because I know you're very busy. And of course, we are humongous fans of what you do. And I cannot lie, I've been watching Cool TV, the cartoon thing that you guys <laughs> on YouTube, which I think is absolutely amazing. And the tidbits we've learned about behind the scenes, it's just incredible to see, you know, that to know that almost. Let's see, a band that started in 1964 is almost 60 years coming up together. I don't know people alive that long or marriages that stayed together that long, but that is a testament. And I, I owe it to you guys and to set those standards and to keep pushing the envelope year after year. So. Enough of me talking. How are you doing? I'm doing just wonderful. I was just listening to you, Benny. I was thinking about it. Next year, we'll be 60 years. You know, when you go back, we started off at the Jazzy X, the Soul Town Band, Cool in the Flames, and then Cool in the Gang. So next year, we'll be 60 years. I can have another big celebration. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been great, man. We've been... Um, Pretty busy uh, last year, and the tail part of last year, we uh, we played um, for the uh, Night of the Proms, which is with the German Philharmonic Orchestra, and we did 18 shows. We did uh, two in Belgium, and the rest was in Germany. And from there, we went to Cairo, Egypt, and we did a show in front of the pyramids. And um, we're going to head back that way this year also. Uh, to go back uh, to the Great Pyramids. So. And I guess, as you know, um, we have a new single. This came out for almost about a month ago. It's called Let's Party. Let's Party, right? Let's Party. Hey, make sure you have your nice cold glass of the cool champagne while you're partying. Let me show everybody that. While you're doing that, before we get here, this man is pushing. This is his champagne, La Cool. Okay, everyone? And he... He hooked up with, if I remember correctly, the French, one of the top guys in the vineyard business in France, 
Paul Bertolo, is that correct? Yeah, with the Bertolo family. Uh, up in Ypres, um, Ypres is one of the most popular villages for Champagne. Uh, it's also Rems, and then you have Champagne County. So yeah, we uh, we got together about uh, five five years ago. Uh, what happened was um, I was on tour about that time, and we had uh, about twenty sold out shows. So the promoter came to me and said, "Listen, I'm doing the Champagne on the late Barry White and the Barry White lookalike." One of the, the, the Bee Gees he said, would you like to sell champagne on this tour? So I said, well, I don't know if I want to do that because my fans going to want T-shirts and caps, you know, after the concert. So I said, well, what I would like to do is get on the shelves. So he looked at me and surprised. I said, yeah, I want to be on the shelves. No, I want to be on the shelves like Dom Perignon and Chris Style, Dom Renard, Vu Pico. So it took him by surprise. And then I went on, came up with the name, Le Coup Champagne. And then uh, I was able to cut a deal up in uh, uh, Ypres with the Bertolo family. And we came out with Le Coup Champagne. Now, this is a... This year, we feel it'll be one of our uh, better years. Um, you know, we, we got uh, pushed back for a couple of years, not only Champagne, but <clears throat> two in the gang, uh, for, uh, for COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're just getting back out there uh, this year. We're very happy what we're going to do this year with the Champagne. So that's the, the cool Champagne story. That's cool, dude. Wow. But I'm like that you actually said, you know what? We know our fans, but we want to be on the shelves. That, to me, is class. And I'm going to presume you have that class. Because I see how you dress. I see how you entertain. You are, what we say, a true class act in every way. You know? Well, I'm thankful. You know, um, uh, to you guys, True House, and what you're doing, Benny, and the fact that uh, all the uh, things we have done over the years, very first record came out in 1969, it was called Cool in the Gang. Uh, right before that, we had Cool in the Flames. And we didn't want to have a problem with the Godfather, with James Brown. Did you really think you were going to have an issue with him? On that yeah, you know, I don't know. But we wanted to, we, we, again, he had Flame, and yes. I had Cool in the Flame. But I figured the gang might be better. Our manager at that time, producer Gene Ray, said, why don't you guys just call yourself uh, Cool in the Gang? Because the music, see, when we were with the Soul Town Band, Soul Town was trying to be like Motown, was trying to be like Motown. And we were the Soul Town Band, so they had like two, uh, two shows uh, a month. And we would have, we were the backup band. We had to learn all these songs from Motown artists. And so uh, from that point, we moved on to Cool in the Flames. And we played a lot of James Brown. We, we played, you know, different people from the Soul Town Review. With uh, this one guy who called himself Tiny, Tiny Tim. He was uh, like a little James Brown. <laughs> so we figured, let's let's go with the game, and that that's when it started in 1969. So, but I'm going to go back a little bit before that to when you and your brother um, came to live in Jersey City. I know 
you're from Youngstown originally, right? Youngstown, Ohio? Youngstown, Ohio. Right. So I'm assuming that from what I've seen and heard at the time in the 60s, Jersey City was a bit rough at that time. So yes. Can you elaborate a little bit what went on before you guys created this band? Like what life was like for you two growing up? Well, we left Youngstown um, around 1960. Um, and um, I noticed that um, in the neighborhood, it was a little rough neighborhood. And uh, I remember my mother uh, sending me to the store. Uh, they get at that time it's called Lucy Bread, called twenty five cent. So I went to the store. These two guys walk up to me, and said, "Give me your money." I said, "I'm a country boy from Youngstown." What? Right. <laughs> McCorder. <laughs> That's right. It was but twenty five cents a lot of money back then. <laughs> and so I told my mother, "Hey, they, they took they, they took the quarter. Couldn't get the bread, huh? What?" So I said, now, either they're going to keep taking my money or I'm going to have to find a way to deal with Jersey City. Right. So it was this movie that came on uh, called Tamango. And it was with Dorothy Tandrews. And he was a rebellious slave. Uh, uh, come on, ship. If you see the movie or the story, you know. I said, I like that guy. So I changed my name at that time first to Tomango. And those two guys that took my money, I ended up joining them. And then we ended up creating uh, young gangster guy, you know, called the Imperial Lords. I found myself becoming the president of the Imperial Lords with the name Tomango. I know they're going to be a cool young. So wait, hang on. I said, "From a country boy," he said, "Yo, you ain't touching my stuff." Too. Now you're the president of the of this gang. The Imperial Lords. Yeah. Wow. Did yeah. you want to beat some? <laughs> I was going to yeah, say squabble. Yeah. Did you? Was there fighting going on? In uh, I, you know, I was pretty good with my hands. You know, my father, featherweight. He was a uh, top five featherweight. Bobby Bell. Right. My uncle Tommy Bell. Was a middleweight. Tommy Bell beat Sugar Ray, but they took the fight away from him because back then you had to knock the champ out. If you go study that, Google that, he beat Sugar Ray on points. Oh wow! You know, so I, I knew a little bit. I knew a little bit about how to use my hands. You know, I was a country boy, but you know, I knew how to defend myself. You knew, you knew. So, so from there, you became the president. You had all these people following you guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then things moved on. I said, uh, there was another guy at the projects uh, back in the day, and uh, he called himself Cool, and he spelled it with a C. I said, hey, I like that name. <laughs> so I changed my name from Tomango to Cool, and I spelled it with a K. Now, knowing that, that was starting the development of the whole Cool Gang thing, you know, and we uh, used to work and play at the Jazz Acts and different gigs and things started to develop so I slowly kind of slid out of the street thing thank god <laughs> thank god because otherwise we wouldn't have cool in the gang as we know it yeah it wouldn't be it wouldn't be yeah but I was kind of protection for my family my brother you know because um, they know they would uh, mess with my family 
Because they had to mess with me. And then I had all those guys behind me, the same guy that took my corner. <laughs> so that's that story. It's, it's in there, though, those uh, vignettes that you see. Yeah, I saw it. I was yeah. You guys did a great job. Yeah, yeah. You did so we, we moved on from that and uh, came out with our first record, like I said, in 1969, The Cool in the Gang. It and was then, a top 40 hit. We didn't think that our first record would be a hit. But all after that, a lot of the other records were just territorial sort of hits, like Funky Man, Funky Granny, Let the Music Take Your Mind, right. some of the other tracks that, that we did. But it wasn't until um, around 1973, I believe it was, or two seventy three, um, record company came to us and said, listen, um, you guys um, need a producer. We said, what? He said, yeah, you need a producer. This guy, they just came out with this hit, uh, Somakusa, by Mongo de Bongo, um, or Bango. He said, I want uh, to introduce you to this guy and work with you guys. Right. So we met with him one time, and we weren't feeling it. So what we did, we went to a studio called Baggies down in the, near the village in New York. Right. Went in there around 8 o'clock in the morning. And we came out of there. We had created funky stuff, Hollywood swinging, and jungle. We created all those songs that day because our backs was against the wall. <laughs> and so the record company didn't give us any problems anymore after that. Was it was it because Delight was following what was going on with Frankie Crocker playing the Soma Cosa on the radio at that time? It was a big record. Oh, yeah. Huge, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think, uh, you know, the Delight record was looking at all of that. And... But when we turned it around, Ricky Crocker ended up playing Hollywood Swinging. That's he should call himself Hollywood Frankie Crocker. Big time. <laughs> yeah. Radio ain't on unless Frankie Crocker's on. Is oh it? yeah. Oh, New York City, 107.5 WBLS. I mean, I remember his shows, his drive time show. I remember him talking about the nightclubs. I remember him talking about you guys. Um he was a not only did breaking those records became a huge fan of you guys too, because he was yeah. always breaking your records first. If anybody had that power, he had the power. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. so who would be the spokesman? I know because I see you're like the president of this, and you pretty much take the bull by the horns, dealing with like delight. I know Gene Red was your producer and manager at the time, yeah. at that time as well. Even during that time of uh, Hollywood swinging and that, was he still working with you? Oh, he came after. Gene Red was there when we changed the name from Cool in the Flames to, to Cool in the Gang. He was one of the ones that told us, hey, you know, why don't you just call yourself Cool in the Gang? And Gene Red was uh, involved with our very first album, very first Cool in the Gang. Right. We had songs like Chocolate Buttermilk, uh, Raw Hamburgers. Uh, we even covered a, uh, a Temptation song called Since I Lost My Baby in that album. Yeah, but Gene Ray was, um, he was, uh, you know, very uh, influential, I would say, and very uh, positive in terms of how we we moved on, you know. Let me show, let me show everybody the picture of the, the band in 1970. That's the band. 
Yeah. That was it back then. That was it. Can you can you tell us everybody that at that time who was with you? Well, in this picture here, you got Oakton Nash. He came a little later. He he wasn't in the very beginning. Uh, trombones. You got Charles Smith. Mm -hmm. my brother Kalish. Yep. Well, you got George Brown, Spike Mickens. You got D.T. Thomas, and uh, you have me there in the middle there. Yep. <laughs> yep. So yeah. So Oakton Nash was with us. Um, after Oakton Nash came uh, Clifford Adams. Clifford Adams became our trombone player after Oakton Nash. Now, as we move along, because you are now get a taste of the first album with a big hit, and then you, you know you're on you're on delight as well. And this is the thing that people always wonder in those days. You're dealing with Italian mafia and you're dealing with the Jewish mafia in the record business. Were you directly involved or was the management handling that stuff for you guys at that time? Because well, you always hear crazy stories of, you know, hey, yeah. sign here and then artists didn't get paid. You know, all kinds of crazy stuff was going on in those days. Well, at that time with Gene Red, in the beginning, uh, Gene Red uh, had a company called Red Coach Records. And Gene had signed us to Red Coach first. And then when he made the deal with Delight, uh, it became Delight Records. And uh, a little pressure on Gene, you know, because the guys wanted to kind of kind of take over, you know, uh, as we were moving up. And, um, of course, you know, you have, like you said, you know, you have the... Uh, Jewish mafia, and Italian mafia, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we made it through all, through all of that, you know, uh, at that time. But Delight Records had a lot of good connections in terms of, you know, you know what the word the was, getting your record played. Oh, sure. They called that, we know what that word is called, payola. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 DJs that, taking care of certain things to, to make things. Not to say that the product isn't amazing. Because the product is amazing that you guys yes. put out. It's not like it's sometimes you hear records and you know this too as a writer and producer yourself. You go, oh God, no. What in the hell are they hearing this? But everybody's got a different set of ears. Or sometimes you always ask the question, who would they pay to get that to go that way? But in your case, your music was super hot. I mean, like, the, you know, this album here. When you got Hollywood Swing and Jungle Boogie, funky stuff. Those three songs, and not even the other one, Summer Madness. Already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the, that, that, that's the one I was talking about, the one we got the pressure from the record company. Yeah. <laughs> became, uh, you know, wild and peaceful and with those songs. And, uh, the B side was almost nine minutes long. We just kind of stressed out and uh, having fun with our jazz shots. The B side of Wild and Peaceful. And the great thing, yeah. right? And the thing is, you know, you, you have different generations that follow you. Some of them, younger people know the celebration era and later. Some of us know that era and revere that era is so important to us, the 70s, you know. And then you have some that remember when you just started in 69. That's a little before me remembering. But I know, you know, like, how the hell do you go from funky stuff, Hollywood Swing, which to me sounds like an L.A. record, 
because of the horn section when you listen to it to summer madness which is like a jazz fusion track completely two different it was half the band into jazz and half the band into like current sound i mean well yes uh you can say that too to to a degree yeah Light of Worlds was the um, next album after, um, of course, uh, a Wild Beast. And um, there was a song on uh, Light of Worlds called You Don't Have to Change. And my brother was listening to that song one night in the studio, House of Music. And uh, the vamp of You Don't Have to Change, he listened to that. He said, Hey, that's another song. He had just got that art synthesizer. Oh, wow. 2600. And he's out there at four in the morning, instead of soloing on the van. Next day, he said, Well, hey, guys, listen to this. So, Spike, who, Spike Mickens, who wrote the song, You Don't Have to Change, he said, Oh, that sounds great. So, Got another record. We're gonna call it. Ah, it's called Summer Madness. It's happened in the summer, so let's call it Summer Madness. <laughs> and that was the word for Summer Madness. Not knowing what that song was gonna be. If you look at from the Rocky movie, we played Summer Madness. He was getting ready to have that fight that next day. Yep. And that's Will Smith. Summertime took him okay. platinum, number one record. Watched him into the movie business. <laughs> yeah. Now talk about syncing and sampling. Here's something that um I wanted to I've been thinking to ask you, and this goes back 20 years ago. There was producers that were telling me they had sampled open sesame on the you know in the dance music arena. And they said they sent it over to the publishers, I guess, of you guys, and they were responded. We don't click samples. Do you feel that it's important to clear these type of samples, or do you feel like, mm, I, you know, well, you take it a case by case basis? Because a lot of people don't understand that some of these records they're hearing with these new artists are your records. Re, let's put it like this: changed and evolved into a new record, but the core is you in a sense. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that, you know? Well, in the beginning, a lot was going on, but we wasn't paying close attention to that till a little later. And we kept hearing online and mixing. So uh, I said to myself, well, we got to put somebody on sample patrol. And it wasn't until uh, I think President Biden cleared the right in Washington where anybody sample your record, they have to pay. So the record companies then took that position. They heard somebody sample, they went after you. I know. Now you had to negotiate the sample. And if you were another record company, you want to make sure that you have sample clearance. Correct. And that's when we started looking at everything. <laughs> yeah, because, like, for example, Stevie Wonder, it's right away a no with him, unless it's a personal friend. He's like, no way. He won't clear samples. He said it totally many times. And I see sometimes your records are getting sampled from some of the hip hop guys. And I've seen them to become huge hits over the years. And I just was always curious how you 
how you felt as a writer. And it's your baby, basically. You guys created this stuff. You know how it's used. Well, it kind of started with uh, hip hop in terms of samples. Because uh, the earlier days, before uh, JT joined the band and before we did the whole Ladies Night Project and on and on and on in the 80s, uh, we didn't really have uh, least singer at the time. We had, I call it gang sam, you know, Hollywood swing, everybody yeah. singing together, Jungle Boogie, fucking stuff. Uh, but uh, at that time, so uh, I think a lot of the uh, hip hop artists uh, listen to it and they say, well, huh, nothing in the way. I don't hear no lead vocals. Let me grab that guitar part. Mm, oh, I, I like that drum beat. Mm, yeah, that sounds good. Let me. And that started creating the whole, that's why a lot of, and I find over the years, a lot of guys from the hip hop world say, man, man, you guys are what opened the door for us, man, because them tracks that y'all was doing. Like, for instance, about the Apollo Theater. Right. And uh, at this time, at that time, his name was Puffy. He came to me, he said, uh, you know what? He said, I'm going to make a big record for you. I said, oh, okay. All right. So he went and got Hollywood swinging, did it over, and him and Mace got together and did Bad, 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 Bad Boy or Bad Girl, whoever it was. Yeah. Big record. So people constantly was listening to what we do and got ideas and did this and did that. And like I said, the uh, 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 publishing company and uh, BMI and et cetera, the record company, they started following that. And that's, that's, that's what happened. Because if you listen to Mr. Jerry Brown... It's oh, just, yeah. oh, my God. He's been sampled like crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, they said, well, Cooling Gang is one of the number one sample bands in the world. He said, no, Cooling Gang is number two. I'm number one. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, you guys have been sampled crazily. Yeah, the yeah. amount of samples you hear and records. And I picked them up. I know you would too, because you know your horn lines, you know your bass lines, you know, you know that stuff, the signature sound. Right. It's just that's but speaking from a newer producer from that worked through the 80s into the 90s, it was the coolest thing to say, take open session, da 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 da, and then and and then re-trigger it differently. Oh, it was because here you have an orchestrated part that's done properly musician-wise, and now you have it on one key. And you know what I'm saying? You and you're you're playing around and manipulating it to making it into a whole new track. But I've had it done to me too. Someone oh. takes my record and it's not a great feeling. I know the feeling. <laughs> like sitting going. Oh, I hear you. So it's like a it's a you know, six in one hand, a dozen other. If the record becomes a massive hit, it's like, wow, another big one we got again. If it's something where they manipulate it to you, go, this is not what we are known for, then it's tough to, to accept sometimes. Yeah, it is. But I think on, uh, on the educational side of that, uh, the younger people started coming up and listening to these songs, and their parents would say, hey, that's not that cool to get with that. Cooling Gang wrote this. Cooling Gang wrote that. That's right. And they think it was like, you know, uh, Puffy did or this one or that one. They sample our music. It was all them. So the education helped. And, and you know what? It brought up a fan base. Because, uh, you know, so, oh, well, we go check out Cooling Gang. 
So, so now that you guys are not really a disco band, but I have to bring this up because I'm a disco fanatic. Okay. I love you guys, but check this out. So Saturday Night Fever happens, right? Right. One of the tracks, of course, is Open Sesame. Right. What does that do to you with this soundtrack? We know it sells mega millions. We know that. But what does it do for the band? Did you see anything directly from it, from the success of Saturday Night Fever and this crazy phenomenon that happened? Well, it took us uh, to another level before, uh, you know, uh, Ladies' Night and when uh, JT joined the band was that, you know, um, Saturday Night Fever ended up being the top-selling album in the world until Michael Jackson came about and knocked us off the box with Thriller. So uh, that sold over 20-something million records. So that opened up the door for us, too, you know. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was, I guess it was our answer to the dance floor. What I mean by that is, you know, my, my brother, you know, who wrote uh, Open Sesame, and he said, well, uh, I want to put something on the dance floor, but I want to keep the um, credibility cool in the game. So he wouldn't put the song together. And if you listen to Open Sesame, he did it on the street, you know, uh, to the floor beat. But, you know, but he kept that disco beat happening. Right, he had the 4-4 four, four sound and the kick drum. I remember that. Yeah. Right, but, but you can swing that. Yes, it can be jazz, it can be swung as well as to the dance floor. He wanted to keep it to the dance floor, and then a lot of people said, "Wow, what's that?" You know, he's trying to compete with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Something. He said, "Yeah, maybe." <laughs> this is what we do. So that was that your competitive band at the time? Would you say Earth, Wind, and Fire? Well, that's what people would say. Always let's say, let's say the people out, not you guys, but you know, you always are. You know, everyone has this thing called categories or, you know, who's the best, who's the second best. Would you, I would assume that you would say Cool in the Gang, Earth, Wind and Fire, the main ingredient. There was a lot of bands around that era in the 70s. Isley Brothers. Isley Brothers, yeah. Uh, well, well, the horn sound was Earth, Wind and Fire. They all, they had those type of intricate horn sounds and they made it work for what they were doing uh, musically. Uh, on the other side, on the funk side, it was George Clinton with Parliament Funkadelics. That's right. Uh, he came to do with some real funk. Yeah. And he and then he landed the mothership with funk. <laughs> so are you guys like you know, DJs, producers, and remixes do this all the time. We're checking out what's going on around us. At the time when this was all going out, were you guys scouting around looking how the other bands were playing to see what, you know, what you can do to maybe make the adjustments so that you stood out or stood ahead of everyone else, you know, cause you can't help being competitive too. This is, a, we're all in the same game, but we want to be the best at what we do. Would you guys be doing that as well? Yeah, we, we would be listening. And the fact that we, um, uh, recognize, you know, of the different groups that some of the, uh, other artists was doing. And, uh, but we wanted to, keep the cool in the gang sound. So whatever we did, when you hear a horn, riff, trumpet, or the trombone, I mean, trumpet, I mean, at that time, trumpet, the saxophone, alto, you still knew it was cool in the gang. So people knew that they really were following us, what our sound sounded like. It was that magic of the trumpet, uh, alto, and tenor, which was uh, Khalees, my brother, Spike Mickens, 
and Dennis right. Thomas. And that's what makes you guys, you guys, cool. Cool in the gang. Um, but then along the way, Philly International starts too in, in Philadelphia, which is not far from Jersey. So then yeah. you're, having, you're having Earl Young playing with his MFSB band and Gambling Huff doing their thing. Oh, yeah. Same yeah. So there's so much, you know, pre to that, there was nothing that sounded like any of you guys before. And now all of you explode. The last thing before would be more like the Motown sound. And now you have this R&B flavor. You guys doing your thing. Earth, Wind & Fire doing their thing. Philadelphia International is coming out with their sound. And you're having this, what I would say, a black explosion of R&B dance. R&B, maybe dance music, but more categorized R&B. Okay. Mm. So the 70s go on. And I do know that you try to lock into disco when disco happened. Tell us that experience for you guys, because there was a lot going on. You're coming off the high of Open Sesame and all that, and then we're getting towards the end of the 70s. And disco is the mainstay. What do you do to encapsulate that sound to what you're doing at that time? Well, also during that time, uh, uh, you had uh, Michael Jackson and the Jacksons. And uh, we were out on tour uh, to Jackson. And Dick Griffey from Soul on Records, he was one of the promoters. He used to promote shows. He had this record company. He had Soul, uh, Soul on Records and, you know, uh, Shalomon, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, he came to us. He said, listen, you guys are doing a great job on the tour. He said, but um, I think you need at least singer. And we said, well, do? He said, yeah, I think you guys need at least six. So we thought about it. And uh, at that time, we said, well, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, they have uh, a Maurice White, uh, Philip Bailey, Commodores, and a lot of Richie. So maybe it's time for us to make a move. Right. And that's when we decided to get the lead singer. And J.T. Taylor with House of Music, House of Music was uh, working over there on the project. And uh, uh, he was introduced to us. And uh, uh, Yamir Diodato was there working with us. We were working on. Wait, let me show Yamir Diodato. That's Diodato. Oh, yeah. Yep. So that's when we decided to get a lead singer. Now, I have been hanging out in New York, Studio 54, uh, with Jeans. Okay. And uh, my wife and I. And uh, you couldn't get in. No, let me go back. Every weekend was ladies' night, you know. Uh, and so I went back uh, to the guy that said, I got a great idea, you know, a song. He said, what? I said, ladies' night. He said, wow, that's one of those everywhere. So I said, wow, that's a ladies' night everywhere in the world. George Brown had been working on the track. And we uh, uh, called that track that he was working on Ladies' Night. And that was our first record with uh, JT. And that's how we kind of slipped out of there because also, as you know, there was an anti-disco movement going on. Oh, yes. It was running uh, records in Chicago and 
rock guys were saying, what kind of music is this? No more BGs, no more BG songs. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's when um, we came up. We played that. Anyway, that album. Can I now, ask? How did Frankie Parker broke that record? Here's another guy. Frankie Parker oh, broke sure. that record in uh, New York. And the rest is history. How, how did you find JT? Tell JT, um, well, we, we were involved with another manager. Uh, his name was Val Hackins. And Val Hackins uh, uh, knew the people at the House of Music. And JT was uh, with a group over in Hackensack. And uh, the owners, uh, Charlie Conrad, I mean Conrad, Conrad of uh, House of Music, recommended him. So he came to the studio, and my brother asked him, well, let me hear you sing something. So my brother started playing some jazz progression. Sing to that. Then he started playing some funk. He said, sing to that. So and JT came through, and then he told JT, you remind me of a young Nat King Cole. He said, oh. <laughs> but when you listen to Too High, some of the stuff that JT did, you know. But that, that's, how, that's how he came down. And then we went on record the Ladies Night Out. Here's the thing. You're working with Keith Dollar, so you're bringing the songs to him, and then he's picking out which ones to go with for the albums? Or are you guys picking it out and working with him to refine it? How does that work? No, we picked out the song, and then we, we had him sing the song. But he started becoming a part of our writing team. You know, he co-wrote some of the songs with my brother and the rest of the band. No, but we would, we would uh, pick out the songs. Cool. And then, of course, from there, the biggest one, I, first one breaks out that's huge is the celebration, right? Am I, am I wrong? Absolutely. Well, let's start back with Ladies Night. Yeah, go ahead. We were out the, at the American Music Award, and we had won two American Music Awards. Let me show that picture. I have a, I think I have one. That's it. Oh, no, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I found that. I got it. American Music Awards. There it is. Yeah, well, you see that award in my hand. So anyway... <laughs> uh, my brother said, uh, you know what? To end the ladies' night, that's another song. He said, this is your night tonight. Come on, let's all celebrate. He said, that's another song. So he put the track together when we got back. And uh, it had that kind of down-home groove to it. You know, uh, uh, remind you of baby grandma and grandpa down there. Birmingham, Alabama, sipping on some lemonade and rocking in the rocking chair. So we came up with a very simple groove and hook that became celebration. And then we threw Yahoo in there. So I guess we grabbed the Middle West and we did that. <laughs> and we came such a big record. It's still our biggest record today. And accepting the Library of Congress, correct? Yes. And uh, can you talk last to year? Yeah. yeah. Can you tell people what that means when it's accepted to that level? Well, I was told that that means America has accepted you. We talk about in the Library of Congress, who, along with a lot of other big artists who has uh, been accepted into the Library of Congress. That was a, a great, uh, great thing for us. Oh, yeah. It's a staple. Yeah. But not, not only that, up at the space station, the astronauts got up one night. Day, whatever, day, night, it's all the same up there. Day. And they play celebration. They used to get up to celebration. 
So celebration made it to the space station. <laughs> wow. And of course, you know all the other things about Mitzvah, the Super Bowl, uh, the World Series, uh, Return to the Hostages from Iran. It goes on and on and on. Yeah, that song, and that song is in thousands of commercials, thousands of adverts, thousands of this. I mean, it's a song that it's what we call a standard. Yeah. Everybody knows that song. I don't care what language you're in. They know they hear the celebration. Even the Muppets did it. So all the kids started like, oh, who's that? Uh, what, what's that song they doing, Daddy? Let's go on the gang celebration. Oh, the Muppets made that? Oh. <laughs> so that's how you know you really got a song that's not just a commercial hit, but a song that becomes everything. You know, yeah. it's it, you, you know, every time you turn the radio on, you hear that song. And I don't think it'll ever go away. And to have something in your catalog of that magnitude, God bless. Wow. Well, thank that's you. a blessing. We, we, we're thankful for that, you know, the happy celebration. You know, with all the other hits that we have, celebration still stands out there. And, you know, we've been blessed with uh, quite a few different you look at Cherish, or you look at Fresh, or Reggae yeah, Dance, you get down on it, Ladies Night. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you guys were you guys were a hit machine. You know, in the eighties, a lot of things changed. Um, like even other bands like Chicago that were you know like a big rock sound in the eighties became a very mellow, sort of synthy sounding band. From when you hear them in the seventies and even though you guys are horn based and everything in the seventies, when you hear the eighties, it's controlled. It's a different sound. It was perfect for the dance floor. It was commercial. Um, did you ever say to yourselves, what the hell, why are we doing this? Because coming from where you were in the seventies with that, you know, those jazz sounds, the horn section was very in front. Um, you know, when you hear the 80s, it's, like I said, it's more synthy sounding, more controlled. And the lead singer takes a big presence where the that had a lot to do with it. We didn't have a lead singer in the 70s. But when we got into the 80s, that's when uh, JT uh, joined the band. And uh, Diodalo, uh, he used to say, uh, listen, you guys got to make room for the lead singer. You, you have the lead singer now. That's uh, we were just playing to all the tracks, you know, all different horn lines. No, you got to back that up, and that that that's what's uh, his uh, production quality. He opened the track up for JT to do his lead, and it still had enough identity in the song uh, for Cool in the Game, uh, Ladies' Night. You heard his voice, but you heard that's Cool in the Game. So it was now it was bringing together the new sound of cooling the game with Lee Bowles. How long did JT stay with you? Ten years. Yeah, he came in '72 and he left in '82. Not '72. He came in '79 and left '89. Yeah, he came in '79. He was with you '79 to '89. Yeah, about, about ten years. Was he? Was he? Is he missed, or did did it feel amicably both sides, where you both said, you know? Oh yeah, some problems with management. Just, just and then he wanted to 
kind of go out there on his own and see what he can do. And, uh, yeah, he was a miss at the time. But it opened up the door for us to expand our marketplace in Europe. We went on to go to other places that we had played, you know, into deeper into Italy, going into uh, Spain. We played in uh, Yugoslavia, Potsdam, uh, uh, Romania, uh, Budapest, uh, uh, Bulgaria. We started that. We started building our marketplace around the world, and that's what we have today. You know, we have. You know, uh, when he left, and, but he came back. You know, he came back for five more years. He came back from 1995 to 1999. Sound like Prince, right? Yeah, he came back. He did come back. Yeah, and uh, we did one album together. Oh, we did two albums. Might have been two. I'm not sure. But yeah, he came back, and then. He left again in uh, 1999. So that was it. Who handles, who handles the lead vocals now for the band? We have uh, our lead uh, singer is a guy by the name of Sean McCuller. We call him Shawnee Mac. And then we have had different people doing different songs. Like my last album, um, Perfect Union, we have a guy by the name of Walt Anderson. He's singing on that. I don't know if you heard the song, Pursuit of Happiness. That's Walt, uh, and we have several tracks on that. Now, uh, we have a new album that's going to come out in April, and we have a single that just came out about a month ago, you know, uh, Let's Party. And we have uh, Walt singing on that a little bit, Sean, Sean McQuilla, and um, we have one other gentleman, our guitarist, so he's doing some lead parts, uh, maybe with myself. That's who we have right now. Oh wow! And how and and when we go back to touring, what's your tour schedule look like from now to the end of the year? Are we are we pretty packed up again? Are you back to you? Yeah, we, yeah, we're getting there. Pretty busy. I mean, I think I mentioned we did the uh, eighteen shows uh, to German Philharmonic Orchestra. You know, uh, and um, yeah, we're pretty busy. Uh, we're working on a residency uh, in Westgate at the Westgate. Uh, matter of fact, we'll be there next month. We did four shows already there. Next month, two more. Uh, six, then we're doing two more in May. And we're looking at uh, the possibility of doing a residency there at, at Westgate in Vegas. Awesome. And I also noticed your son is a major force too, Hakeem. Yeah, yeah. DJ Prince Hakeem. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tell us what is this? This man, this this powerhouse, Hakeem. What's I know he's behind some of your stuff, but what's he up to now? Well, he's DJing now, but uh, every now and then he'll pick and choose to come out on the stage with us because you know over the years he would come out and rap on uh, Jungle Boogie, right, and Celebration. So now that he's doing this DJ thing, you know, actually I'm working on uh, some of the shows. Hakeem opened the show up for us. As oh, a yeah. yeah. And then we go into our thing and then he come out and do his rap. So that's kind of nice for me. Wow. That's what I call fan. And I know you're also a widow as well. And I know you're carrying Sakina Bell's memory in many different ventures. Um, I saw that in the vignettes as well. I saw her name mentioned. Yeah. She, um, she came up with... Uh, the Cool Kids Foundation. And she 
I had a problem with how come they don't have music in the schools anymore. Oh, yeah, it's a big problem. So we put together the Cool Kids Foundation, and um, we did a, a tour. Uh, I came up with the idea called It's Cool to Stay in School. And we did uh, 40, 42, 43 uh, cities. And one of the criteria was that we would do a meet and greet. And, you know, the afternoon before the show, you know, you come to, you know, the meet and greet and we sign autographs and caps and T-shirts, that kind of a thing. And uh, so we were in um, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, these four young students came up to us and said, you know, yeah, we, we, we're good in school, you know, we don't play hooky and all that stuff. We're doing quite well, but we want to sing something for you. So they went on to sing about four songs in acapella. And so my cousin, uh, Dell, who was the manager, he said, well, hey, they sound great. He said, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to get that number. <laughs> so he went to New York, and his brother, Royal, had him uh, working uh, with music uh, on them, with them. And uh, then uh, uh, the new Jack City movie came out. Okay. And we made the group Color Me Bad. And we didn't put the picture on the album because we just wanted them to deal with Color Me Bad. And they didn't know if they were black, white, or, right. or whatever. <laughs> All we said was Color Me Bad. And you know what happened after that. But that tied in from the school thing, from uh, Cool Kids, uh, what my wife was doing. And Color Me Bad came with a huge act. Big time. Yeah. And you found them... And 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 made this all come together. Wow! See, nobody. Yeah, seen we were the guys. Listen, uh, we were the guys that was the guys that was behind the scenes. You know. Also, my brother worked with the Fuji. Fuji's came from my camp. Also, Pink came from my camp as well. A lot of people don't know that. That all came from the Cool Camp. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. See, I didn't know. I didn't even know that the pink. I didn't know pink came from the cool camp. Oh yeah. yeah. How did we find out the pink? The <laughs> oh, wow. cool name wasn't the name wasn't pink in the beginning. Right. They changed the name to pink, and they thought they saw that she was like the star. I'm trying to remember the other two girls that was in the group uh, with the, uh, the facial record and the LA baby face. Uh, um, I think you're. Real singer is uh, yeah, first name. Well, Pink anyway. And so he said, "Let's wash that out with the other two girls, and we need to focus on her." And that's when they changed their name. She changed her name to Pink, and that's this. So did you guys do the first album for her? The first two albums? You did you produce? First album. We worked with them first album. Wow! Congrats on that too. See, that's see everyone. This is why I say, unless we hear it from you, we don't really know. You know, you don't really know those tidbits. They're not really pushed forward. Like, oh, came from the cool camp, or this person was discovered, calling me bad. That's incredible. But look, you know, as they say, talent knows talent. That's you sniff it right out. It is what it is. So. The highest point of your career, Mr. Cool, what would you say? The highest point? Ah. Uh. Well, hmm. well, one of, one of 
several highlights. I think uh, a couple of things um, was one was uh, playing with Elton John at Wembley Stadium, um, big festival up there. That was a high point in my career. Um, another one was playing in Kenya uh, for AIDS awareness. We do a half a million people came. And uh, it was backed by Glaxo and Klein to try, you know, to help the AIDS problem uh, in, in Kenya. That was definitely high point. And from the other side of the fence, okay, other high points was 48 shows, you know, with Van Halen, <laughs> 10 shows with Kid Rock, yeah. Dave Matthew Band, <laughs> Dave Matthew, <laughs> Ron Stewart, I mean, that part of it, they don't even, don't even wait, know. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. How does that work? Because Van Halen's like a major rock band. Yeah. Dave Matthews, alternative rock. Yeah. Dang, black R&B. How does that, uh, what you guys well, you know, when that came down, okay. We're playing for the Glastonbury Festival. Yes, in England. England. And, uh, that week I had to uh, Coldplay and YouTube, all you know, the various groups for that big festival. So uh, David Lee Roth happened to see us on BBC. And he said, uh, hmm. So he calls up uh, Eddie and Alex. He said, ah, I found the support band. I want to go out with me. See, because he, it was him, he was coming back. He had left. Right. Yeah, uh, we rejoined the band for a tour, and uh, so uh, they said, uh, "Well, who?" He said, "Cool in the gang." He said, "Cool in the gang." That's what I said. I said, "Cool." Yeah, what, what have you been smoking, man? What's going on? Cool in the gang. <laughs> he said, "Yeah, cool in the gang." They just rocked the Glastonbury Festival. He said, "You guys forget back in the day, we used to play Ladies' Night, not Ladies' Night. We used to play funky stuff, Jungle Boogie, uh, out there on the West Coast." They play that music. So he told me, he said, listen, you guys have a celebration and uh, uh, we have what well, we have, uh, jump, yes. And he said, so let's go out and have a party. And that's how it happened, just like that. We went to 40 seasons. Jesus. Now, of course, I have to hit you at the high point. And I'm going to put the question like this: Any regrets that you would say I got to, I would do that over, or in the career, the long career that you've you've had with this, and still going on with? No regrets. I have a saying. It goes like this: You live and learn, and then you learn to live. So you go through it. You go through the various things. Starting, I started when I was 14 years old, coming up. In Business, uh, Youngstown, trying to make my way to the to, 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 to the hood, and on and on and on. But you know, it was a good learning lesson. You know, um, different managers, uh, record company, not doing the right things from time to time. You know, all that. Yeah, of course. So I had to live that, and I learned that. I don't think it, I would have had it any other way. Because I went there, you know, like a roller coaster ride. There was times when people had to count us out. I remember being in Jersey City, 
and and uh, that's uh, you guys still together? <laughs> Don't you love me? <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How you like me now? <laughs> anyway. How you like me now? Right, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, no. The way it came down, uh, it, it, it's, uh, and also for the future, because a lot of things, you know, I won't do anymore. Or we won't do anymore. We won't do anymore. You know, you, know, you, you go through it. You know, you know more about publishing. You know more about writing. You know about uh, how to cut your deals with the record company. And that's right. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Learning about, like, we all had to learn about that word streaming. Yeah. The whole new way of you know physical physical copies are not the way anymore. It's the streaming world now. It's like what's the stream? In the beginning, I think everybody was like, "What? We're not selling physical no more." No, we. I said the same thing, and I still say it to some degree. I said, uh, "I come from the days when you had vinyl. If you sold a million records, if you got a dollar record, you made a million dollars. Right, exactly. Platinum or whatever." But stream, stream what? What what what, what are we streaming? <laughs> Where's the good old bring me back to good old days? Not though I do a million records, I got a million dollars. Well that's yeah. the thing. Streaming though, this is a lot of money in streaming. You gotta stream a hell of a lot to get money. Yeah, like a hundred million streams to make that same money you gotta make. But how do you accept that fact? What do you do? Do you just put on blinders? How do you, what do you do? Uh, yeah, I have to have people around me that understand more about the streaming side. Cause I'm not really into the streaming side, but you know, there's money there, uh, money being made. I guess uh, uh, when you're streaming, people know about you, you can raise your price for live concerts. That's one of the things that some people do. Hey, uh, if I get X amount of streams, I'll send more people. I'll raise my dollar price and put more people in the seats. That's where that's where it changes on the line. So the old the old way used to be you would tour to support the album. Uh-huh. Now it's the opposite. Now, now you gotta stream to support the show. Right. <laughs> and right. Used to be used to be you'd be out there to make that album go gold, platinum, yeah. and go. Right. Now you're doing reverse psychology, you make more money at the gate, but you don't make the same money on the physical side. Sometimes depends, you know. Well, it's the way you know because with new technology, iPhones, uh, you know, social media, and that, that whole thing. Although I'm hearing, I don't know how strong it's going to be. They said the vinyl is slowly coming back. I keep hearing that too, but would it ever be where we remember it? Say again. You, would, would, do you think it'll ever be where we where we experienced that amount of having a gold record? on an actual piece of vinyl or a platinum record? I don't know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, you know. I don't know because people, it's so, like, look, this phone thing and playing your music is so easy now. I don't see everybody going, okay, right, let me go out and get a turntable. And let. I could see a Nietzsche crowd. I don't think everyone's going to do that. It's just not the way. No, things have changed. I was so many years ago. When they were talking about iPhones. Now, wait, how did you feel when they said to you, we're going to start using this new form of thing called CDs? Do you remember that when that started? Oh, yeah, after that, CDs, CDs turn around to do good, but at least you got paid. Right. <laughs> but uh, that the iPhone, this is going to take over the industry. You're going to be able to do everything on the iPhone. You're so right. making moves to getting pieces of those iPhone companies and 
Samsung or this company or that company. And if you look at it, <laughs> you see everything with that one small iPhone. You hook it up to your computers and then all that other stuff. But look, where, where is that now? No. And so, here's, uh, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to tell you what, we're almost there. We're almost to the point where you're doing everything on the phone. We're not that far. You're going to be buying, selling, every investing. You don't need a computer, a smartphone. Smartphone, iPhone. But you know what? The good thing about it is that iPhone can't get on that stage and do a show. That's what I want to ask you. <laughs> that's yeah. that's Those who can still do shows, you know, that, that's our blessing now. Get out there and do a hell of a concert. People just want to have fun. You just can't. You know, iPhones is great to promote it, but you got to be able to be on that stage and really make it happen. Yeah, because people want to see the actual real thing. You can't, yeah. you know, you can't stream that. No. You do. do you? Did you ever think back in 64, 69, even 70, that you would still be going strong like this now and, and never think to stopping ever? Well, in 64, when we first started, you know, it was just coming out of high school and just having fun, you know, about the music. Because uh, I used to go back and to the Apollo Theater and I saw The Temptations or Smokey Robinson and The Miracles or Go See James Brown. I said, wow, it's great to be a star. <laughs> Never knowing that one day I would be on that stage. And people right. would be looking at me saying the same thing. You see, so that that's a blessing within itself. So I'm happy to be here, happy to be around. And God has blessed us, and then we're moving forward. To Stay in it. Stay yeah, well, we can't say thank you enough for joining us and giving us a history lesson and behind the scenes to what the cool camp is really yeah. about. And well, of course, yeah. everyone, now this champagne, can they get that here? In um in the state side in in America, yeah yeah. Well, um, where are you? What city are you in? I'm in New York. Yeah, you can get in uh, New York right now. We have nine states because everything you have to get uh, a license in each state. So you can get it in uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Georgia, uh, Florida, uh, Ohio, Tennessee. And now we have Vegas. We get ready to rock Vegas. All right. So get ready for your cool champagne. And we'll be there Super Bowl weekend. We're going to be. Are you, are you performing? Are you performing anywhere on that weekend? Yeah, at the Westgate in Vegas. Sorry. I did hear you say Westgate. Yeah, we're yes. going to Westgate. And, so and we have distribution now. You know, uh, 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 Franco Wines is our distributor there in uh, Vegas. And this may be where you're going to be doing your residency, right? Right, exactly. How often? Well, it depends on uh, how they come back. Right now, we we did four shows already. Next month, will be six. May will be eight. Now they talk about expanding. You know, that's how Barry Manilow's held that house down for years after. You know, of course, you know, that was the house, but uh they helped especially when it was yes. the Hilton Hotel. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we're looking now, forward to that. Yeah. And now you may be today's Elvis Presley holding it down every week soon. 
But this is the last thing I had to ask. Would you rather be a resident at one place than doing touring all over the place? I like both. I like to have a residency where, you know, um, you do, you know, a couple months in and then uh, you can get out of there for a couple months. I wouldn't want to be locked down for the whole, whole year. I like to be able to go in and out. And you're starting to see that now with uh, these artists who have residencies. They open up the door for other artists to come in now. They're not trying to stay there for those six months uh, to a year. I think it does something to you. I think it stagnates you after a while, being in the same place doing show after show. I think I think it's nice to walk into a new venue somewhere and just have that fresh, you know, moment where you create something maybe different than you did somewhere else. Because when you do a show every week or a few nights a week at a residency, you start to kind of get maybe mundane and bored. I would yeah. say. Yeah, I mean, we gotta get out, see the world a little bit, man. Stay in, maybe something. I got to stay away from the damn crap table. Now I'll be broke. <laughs> oh, yes. Anyway, what's that's that? a joke for me. But, so, yeah. what's, it, what's the job of a U.S. ambassador? I know you're U.S. ambassador to Africa, right? Yeah, we work on a few things, yeah. Uh, with the AU, uh, uh, announcing the, uh, to be a music ambassador to the AU and you know, we got various projects uh, that we're doing uh, in Africa. I've been going to Africa for over 30 years, you know, and uh, doing some things up in the Zim, Zimbabwe, you know, uh, uh, Victoria Falls. Uh, that's one of the seven wonders of the world. Yes. Not one of the seven, uh, the pyramids in Cairo and Egypt. So we're moving. We're moving this year, you know. And my thing right now is the Cool Champagne Presents. Oh, is that how it's going out? The Cool Champagne Presents? Yeah, that's what we, that's how we move. The Rock the World Tour. Rock the World Tour. You heard that, everyone. You stay on Cool and the gang. They're hotter than ever. They're hotter than ever, and they're going to come to a city near you. Keep an eye on them, because this show is watched around the world. We got a lot of people from the UK watching right now as well, because... We have a okay. big following over there too. And they were actually writing, they saw you in, the, in this past summer. Some people were writing. Oh, yeah, we're going back. We're going back. Uh, we got three three festivals uh, in, in, in June right now in the UK. All right. Mr. Cool, thank you so much for your time. And I'm going to say to you, never stop what you love doing because you are the man and a master of the game. You get a 10 out of, you get 11 out of 10 from me. I'm one of your biggest fans. I know many others are. You got millions of fans around the world. I just, we just want, we don't ever want you to stop because I've seen you on stage. You are a powerhouse. You rock that bass. I mean, oh, and oh, I forgot to ask this. Did you ever have musical training playing the bass? Because I know you just picked it up and started playing. Were you formally trained at all? No, I picked it up and started playing, like you said. Really? Yeah, you know, listening to Motown, listening to Jameson, listening to um, from the jazz side. You know, uh, the first time I played the bass, uh, I was in uh, um, town take uh, place down in uh, New York downtown. Cafe Wa, right? Cafe Wa, and I learned how to play one song from Spike Mickens' brother's guitar, and I was coming home, babe. And you can play it all on one string. So that night, my brother said, 
man, why don't you just pick up the bass and play that one song you know, Coming Home Baby. And that's what I did. I was able to play the whole song on one string. And that was the beginning. To never end. Wow. Thank you, Mr. Cool. Everyone, next week, don't go anywhere yet. We have Miss Melba Moore coming on next week. Don't miss that as well. Make sure you pick up this man's champagne. It's as fun, as great champagne should ever be. La Cool. And it's me, Lenny Fontana. Good night, everyone. And thank you for tuning in to True House Stories. And Mr. Cool, you stay super cool. Never stop being cool. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.